Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Yo, yo, what's going on, everybody? This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast, and I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita. Thank you very much once again for tuning in. I um, didn't do an episode at the end of last week. I was a little under the weather on Friday, and I just wasn't really feeling up to the task. And then, of course, we had playoff football all weekend, and man, that really just cuts into your day. Watching all these football games, there were some some pretty big upsets over the weekend. Uh, uh, Baltimore got pantsed by the Titans, and um, <clears throat> actually the Chiefs almost lost too. It looked like they were going down for the count early on. They were down like 24 points, came back, and ended up being a blowout the other way. Anyway, so I hope everybody else had a good weekend. Mine was pretty good, all things considered. And man, it just goes by fast. But um, there wasn't a whole lot going on in the news either, which is why I wasn't really um, feeling pressured to come out with another episode at the end of last week. I've already done, I think, probably two episodes in a row on Iran. And, you know, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But I do have I, I did have a couple sort of follow up thoughts to everything that I was talking about over the last couple of episodes that just real quick I thought I would throw out there because one of them I thought was a, a pretty good point made on another podcast, which is probably one of my other favorite libertarian podcasts is part of the problem with the most consistent motherfucker you know, Dave Smith. And I thought he made a really good point that I failed to make in my episodes. And just in case there are some listeners of mine that don't listen to his podcast, I thought I should mention it. Because, you know, I talked about the how the anti-war left sort of fell off the map during Obama's presidency and how those people tend to think in terms of party over principle, and we've gone over that. And I think, I'm sure Dave and I have both talked about how earlier in Trump's presidency, one of the good things that we thought was going to come to fruition was that all these, um, all this hatred for Trump would bring back the anti-war left, sort of out of hibernation, if you will. But we really didn't see any of that immediately. And in, in fact, you know, when... Trump felt pressured to respond to these fake gas attacks by Assad, you know. Um, and he fired all those just missiles into nowhere in Syria and just bombed a bunch of nothing. <laughs> just to, I guess, I don't know, show a force, kind of like what Iran did to us. Um, even the corporate press was saying, oh, this is the first time he's being presidential and the Democrats were coming out and, and giving him props for doing that. It was really bizarre. Um, and so now that Trump has instigated this whole thing with Iran, which seems to be dialing down now, at least from, from um, our involvement, uh, we're going to go over what's happening over in Iran now over the last couple of days. But as far as tensions between the U.S. and Iran, that, that seems to be diffused. But since Trump instigated this whole thing with Iran, all of these anti-war left people are starting to come out of the woodwork again. And the point he was making on uh, part of the problem is that it's because Iran would be 100% percent 
Trump's war. It, it was his fault, you know, and only Trump's war. You see, if Trump were to start his own war with a country where Obama had actually signed a deal, had a deal signed, sealed, and delivered, and then Trump comes in and tears up that deal without even fucking reading it, most likely, and, and gets us into another conflict, well, then it's okay for the left to come out against it and not have to deal with any of the criticisms of the fact that Trump was just doing the same thing that Obama was doing. Um, and so that's why they couldn't come out against all the serious stuff or the war in Yemen or Libya or Afghanistan, Iraq, all this stuff, uh, because they would have to face the fact that those were just continuations of Obama's foreign policy. And most of those were also continuations of the Bush foreign policy. Uh, so it allows them, in a sense, to separate it from anything Obama did and simply criticize, you know, the bad orange man. And that was definitely one of the worst enduring effects of Obama's presidency was the dismantling and the disappearance of the anti-war left in America. It was the only issue the left was really good on, as far as I'm concerned, and the vast majority of them, with the exception of, of course, you know, a handful of principled uh, left-leaning people, they've lost all credibility on the subject. It's just like what happened with the Republicans who claimed to be for small government and restrained spending under Obama. But when they were in power under George W. Bush, they held their tongues while a, you know, a Republican president, a Republican-controlled Congress, presided over the biggest expansion of government and the biggest increase in government spending up to that point in history. So they lost all credibility there. And then... They try to come out and against further expansion of these policies once it's a Democrat in office, you know. Anyway, I, I just thought it was a good point, and I, I wish I had made it. And it just goes to show you why principles are so important, and, you know, it's further evidence as to just how full of it both of these parties are and how the, the biggest difference between them is so negligible at best that you really need to look to the, the third party option, the third leg of that stool. You know, we have Republicans, we have Democrats, and then you have Libertarians. And Libertarians are better Democrats than the Democrats and better Republicans than the Republicans. And they're, they're principled. They, they are principled, as long as you're not putting up a Gary Johnson or a Bill Weld. <laughs> um, they're they're the, the, by far the best option for anybody that wants to participate in this state apparatus. The other thing I've been seeing a lot of, just some of the dumbest arguments coming from right-wing ideologues on the internet, you know, Twitter and Facebook, things like that, and the, and the corporate press, as to why we needed to attack Iran and why we needed to kill Soleimani, right? I've been getting some pushback on the Twitters and getting into a couple of, you know, Twitter spats or whatever with some of these people who think, well, the CIA and the corporate press have told us that Soleimani was plotting a terror attack against U.S. targets, and Iran is the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world because they back these terrorist rebel groups throughout the Middle East. And it's just unbelievable to me how quickly these right-wingers can just all of a sudden buy right back into the, the propaganda. These same people who chant, fake news at Trump rallies, who have listened to the corporate press and the, and the CIA and the deep state call Trump a Russian asset for the last three years. Now, all of a sudden, they're all just ready and willing to take them at face value. Like, no evidence needs to be presented. They can just say that Iran did this, Iran, Iran did that, they were plotting this, they were plotting that, and, and nobody ever demands to see any sort of proof as to why they know that. It's like, well, it's been reported that he was going to attack us, so we had to take him out. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Uh, reported? By who? The same people that have been lying to you for years? The same fake news sources that you've been railing against? It all just goes out the window because now you have to find some way of explaining uh, your guy's behavior, right? It's like, wow, that's got to be the, the, a record turnaround time.
Like on December 31st, the deep state was not to be trusted ever. They were a bunch of liars who would tell us anything that they, they needed to get their way. And then by January 2nd, we're just going to take them at their word because it fits our narrative. Uh, oh, okay. That's a great approach. It's like, you sure you don't want to see some evidence to back up any of their claims before you get us into another war? Uh, how the hell have you already forgotten about all the other wars that they lied us into? Just a couple of weeks ago, we got the documented evidence of all the lies they told us about Afghanistan and uh, with the whistleblowers and the whole Syria thing. Like, Assad didn't gas his people after all. It's like, come on, dude. And I mean, just to parrot the right-wing talking points that Iran is the biggest sponsor of terrorism, and they say that knowing that most Americans hear the word terrorist and immediately think, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, but they're really referring to Hezbollah, it is, you know, disingenuous to say the least. But I mean, again, put yourself in the shoes of anyone over in the Middle East and ask yourself, who is a bigger sponsor of terrorists. It's funny because terrorism only seems to apply to groups of people that inflict violence on others for political or religious ideology as long as they aren't a government, right? If a government does it, well, then it's not terrorism. It's just foreign policy, right? But if I were to tell you a group of people were flying drones into cities and bombing people indiscriminately, hitting weddings and schools and school buses and sending insurgents into countries and basically just describe everything that our military has been doing over the last two decades. Would that not fit the definition of terrorism from the perspective of somebody over in the Middle East? I mean, are we not inflicting unlawful use of violence or intimidation for a political aim? all over the Middle East, isn't that essentially our entire foreign policy at this point? So who really is the biggest sponsor of terrorism when you think about it? I mean, in terms of the, the terrorist footprint, we're all over the Middle East. And that's not to say that you know Hezbollah doesn't do horrible things or that Iran doesn't sponsor terrorism in some way if you want to go with that definition. It's just that, you know, you have to look at the two the two things side by side and do a little comparison, a little uh, introspection, if you will, and, and realize what our role in all of this is. Like if we're going to say, if we're going to keep saying that Iran-backed militias because they gave them weapons or money or training or support or whatever, and that makes them the, the world's biggest sponsor of terrorism, well, who funded and created Al-Qaeda and ISIS? That was America. We did that. Okay? By that logic, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, those are all American-backed militias. Right? I mean, after all, we funded and armed both of those groups at one point. So technically, they're an American-backed terrorist organization. Are they not? If, if you want to go by the, the corporate press's definition of Iran-backed militias. And all these Trump supporters just bending over backwards, trying to do all this mental gymnastics to rationalize their support for him. You know, he's always playing 4D chess or 5D chess, even when he's doing the exact opposite of what he campaigned on. I mean, he was critical of the war in Iraq. That was one of the things that he would hit Hillary Clinton with during the election. He, he went into South Carolina or Alabama or something like that and told the troops or told the, the people that they lied us into war. And we're gonna we're gonna end these pointless, expensive wars. That was his whole thing. And now the Iraq Parliament has voted to expel our troops, and now he doesn't want to leave. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why not take advantage of this excuse to pull out? It, it's just like how in the last episode I talked about Trump giving Iran an out to save face, which he he appears to, uh, appears to have done. Well, this is Iraq doing the same thing for us. They don't want us there. He says he doesn't want us there. Uh, the American people don't want us there. So leave. Let's just get the fuck out. Why not? But no, no. <laughs> no, now, now he doesn't want to leave. He's playing some more 4D chess over there. Now he says that we're not leaving until they pay us back for all the expensive military bases that we built. Which not only will that never happen, but I mean the gall 
of that idea. Just the fact that you think Iraq somehow owes the U.S. money for everything we've done over there. It's like, let's see, we marched in, overthrew their government, built a bunch of military bases uh, from which we patrol their streets, kill their people, bomb their buildings. We literally destroyed their country over the last 16 years. And now we're going to send them a bill for our troubles. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We're like the world's worst house guest. We invite ourselves over, destroy your place, and then demand payment for our time and trouble. Oh, man. It really is unbelievable. <laughs> um, anyway, after my last episode, I think Trump came out and gave his speech about the whole Iran situation. I thought overall it was pretty good. There was some bloviating in there, but... Not as much as I was expecting, not as much shit talking and, and, and taunting of Iran as I was expecting. He, he, he does seem to be um, allowing the situation to diffuse. Now, he did start threatening to hit cultural targets. And I mean, uh, Jesus, like what a horrible idea that would be. <laughs> like, look, we're not at war with the Iranian people. If anything... And when I say we, I mean the United, like the government, right? Our government is not at war with the Iranian people. If anything, they're at war with the Iranian government. So hit government targets if you have to do it. Hit military targets if you have to hit something. Don't go after their cultural shit. Like these people didn't do anything. Even if you're pissed off at their government, maybe the Iranian people are too. In fact, they are now uh, that we've gotten some more information on that um, Ukrainian flight. But I'm sure there are people over there that are just like me who despise their government. And your plan is to start blowing up their temples or whatever? I mean, this is the idea, this idea that you are your government and the people uh, are their government is cancer. It's just poison. It's a horrible idea. It's like one of the worst things about democracy is that like people start to believe that they and their government are one and the same. And they're not. But attacking their cultural centers and their temples and all this stuff, going after civilians, that's going to go over real well. If you hadn't already pissed off every Iranian on the face of the earth, that will surely finish the job. And at the same time, generate support all over the Middle East and the world for the Iranian people. Maybe that's um, some of Trump's 4D chess, you know, his master plan to finally unite the entire Middle East and end all of these factions that squabble that have been fighting each other for thousands of years. All he has to do is get them all to galvanize around hating him. <laughs> and boom, thousands of years of discontent with one another just evaporates. <laughs> Oh man. But again, if we if we start ta attacking and targeting civilians in Iran, I, I'll ask again like who who are the terrorists here? I mean, isn't that exactly what the neocons were railing against ISIS and Al-Qaeda for doing? Destroying all these cultural significant historical landmarks all over Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to erase their cultural history, the the, the history of the people by destroying all their stuff. I mean, how is that any different? But anyway, I it, it does seem to be simmering down over there. It doesn't look like there's going to be any further escalation at this point from the U.S. We're not going to retaliate. They, you know, Iran fired their missiles uh, and it hit uh, our air bases, but apparently hit nothing. <laughs> so um, apparently hitting nothing with a bunch of missiles has satiated the Iranian government and and given them the out that they needed to sort of save face with their people. The, you know, the more I think about it, the idea that Iran was intentionally missing targets, or not uh, missing targets, but intentionally hitting things that wouldn't hurt anybody, seems to be the case. I mean, to fire that many missiles and hit nothing is basically impossible, right? <laughs> Unless you're North Korea. <laughs> but, uh... You know, it, it reminds me of this, um, oh God, I can't, I think that, was it Numbers? Was that show? Numbers? And, you know, they have this, these um, FBI agents are investigating this guy who claims to be a psychic in relation to some murder or crime. I can't really remember, but they have him in, in custody and they're interrogating him. 
and they're trying to prove that he's not a psychic or whatever. And and so they pull out a deck of cards and they ask him to call out the, you know, whether or not it's a, I think it was just a red card or a black card. Like it, it was either a heart or a diamond or a spade or a club. And all he had to do was tell them each card that they pulled up what, what it was. So they go through the whole deck of cards and he keeps giving them answers, red, black, red, black, whatever. And then at the end of it, the, the guy looks at me, he's like, this guy's totally full of shit. He just got every single one of these cards wrong. And the, the numbers guy, the statistician, who's like this genius, points out the fact that it's, you know, it's just as hard to get every single one of those wrong as it is to get every single one of them right. So, it, it, in fact, by getting them all wrong, he proved that he had this ability. And it just seems to me that firing all these missiles and not hitting anything significant proves that they could fire missiles and hit something significant. It's almost as if they were like specifically targeting areas where there wasn't anything to hit or wasn't anybody to hurt. Or, I mean, for all I know, they could have called ahead and let our, let our bases know, be like, hey, this is where we're going to fire these missiles. It's going to hit this, this particular coordinate. Make sure there's nobody there, and then we'll just be done with it. Um, that that, that kind of seems to be like what was happening here. And good for them. Uh, you know, good for them. Cooler heads have prevailed. So um, the only other thing that's been going on now is the, the downing of the Ukrainian plane, which I talked about briefly on the, the show, uh, the previous show. At that point, we weren't sure whether or not it had been shot down. It was suspected of being shot down. Um, just the, the coincidence that this plane was flying over Iran the same time that they were firing a bunch of missiles seems to be very uh, unlikely that the plane just went down for no reason. And, of course, all, all of the, the people for the airline and these engineers are coming out and saying that it was never any you know, problem with the aircraft or anything like that. And then Iran wouldn't hand over the black box to anybody so that we could see what was going on. And then... I think either late Friday or early Saturday, the news came out that, in fact, the Iranian missile defense system had made a mistake and they shot down the airline and killed all 176 people aboard. And so President Hassan Rouhani came out and, I mean, in in typical government fashion, just basically said, whoops, you know, we made this mistake. We, We deeply regret it. We're going to work on our, we're going to make some adjustments to our missile defense system. And then he just blamed basically it on the U.S. because, you know, there were all these tensions and then this plane was flying in our air zone and the the, the angle of the plane made it look like it was going to attack us or something like that. And none of this would have happened if it weren't for the U.S., which is fairly, uh, okay, that's a, that's a fair point, but you, you still did um, shoot down a civilian uh, commercial airline. So uh, that's a pretty big whoops. And um, in true government fashion, they, they, they just think that they can apologize for it and move on. And for a day or so, it looked like it, that might work. You know, it, over here, politicians get away with this all the time. The war in Iraq is a great example. Uh, all you have to do as a politician now is say, oh, oops, you know, that was a mistake. I regret having voted for the war in Iraq. And somehow that's just supposed to make everything okay now. Like nobody loses their jobs. And in fact, they're all higher up le- in levels of government now. And the, all all the talking heads in the corporate press, they still have their shows making millions of dollars. There's never any true accountability in government. And the amount of leeway that the American people give our wise overlords in Washington seems to be infinite, no matter how badly they screw up. I mean, how badly do you have to screw something up before we finally conclude that uh, maybe government can't solve this problem and maybe you can't work in government anymore because you made the biggest blunder in foreign policy in, in modern American history? And it just always amazes me how people treat the government versus how they treat free market enterprises. And it just reminds me of so education is a great example. You know, imagine if education was 100% privatized. 
and all these companies were providing education. And the result of that education was exactly the same result that we're getting from the government-provided public education that we're getting today. Declining test scores, embarrassing levels of math and reading proficiency. Uh, have you ever seen you know some of these teachers at the inner city schools and stuff like that and, and they're just they're just factories churning out dense lemmings incapable of critical thinking the whole system is designed to instill compliance and blindly follow instructions and just imagine if a private company produced the result that the government's producing and then they just claim that they need more money, uh, that their funding is the problem. You just got to increase the price of the school, and that'll fix everything. So the quality keeps going down, the price keeps going up, and each failure is a justification to raise your prices. I mean, there would be people rioting. They would be demanding people be fired, maybe be sued. They'd be up in arms. But for some reason, government always gets the benefit of the doubt. It's like, oh, well, of course, they want to do better. We just have to fund them more, obviously. Obviously, that's the problem. And isn't it interesting that an education system run by the government somehow churns out a bunch of people who favor the government handling everything, who never question their motives, who never are skeptical of their incentive structures, who never demand excellence. They just accept that this is the way it is, and this must be the best that they can do, and that they just accept it. Whereas the, the, the demand that we put on private companies, if you get one bad uh, one bad experience at a company, you'll never shop there again. I, I just had, uh, oh God, this is a disgusting story. I, I, hopefully I can get through it without gagging. I just ordered some food on uh, Saturday, I think it was. You know, I was trying to be healthy, so I ordered a steak salad. And I, I had been to this place before. They sponsored one of my softball teams. And their salads are pretty good. They're big and it was a good deal or whatever. Steak, salad with asparagus, and, you know, I got about four bites into it, and in the middle, underneath everything, was this slimy glob of lettuce that was clearly rancid. It was like the size of my fist. It was disgusting. Ugh, uh, I just, I stopped eating immediately, obviously. And then when I went back to it like an hour later, I just left it out on the table. I was trying to, I was debating whether or not I'm going to call this restaurant and like try to raise hell or whatever. And I just decided not to. I hate talking on the phone. Like, what are they going to do? Hey, give me, give me some, a future credit at their, at their shop or something or refund my money. It was through another, through Grubhub. I just didn't want to go through the headache for, I don't know, whatever it was, $12, $15, something like that. But I, I left it out because I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with it. I wanted to bring it back there and show them how disgusting this was. It was covered in mold within like an hour. I mean, that's it. I will never go to that place again. It was the name of the restaurant, it's a bar restaurant place called Pitchfork. It's in Chicago. Never go there. It's over. They, they've lost, they, I've had probably five or six other experiences there that were great. No problems. But that's just an inexcusable thing. It's, it's over. I'm done with them. That's what we demand from our private companies. You never seem to get that sort of demand from, from the government, uh, towards our government, I guess. It's just such a bad system. You can't opt out of it. You can't just say, well, that's it. That was the last draw. Like, you can't do this anymore. I don't want to partake in your system because this was an epic failure and I hate everything that you do can't do that. All you can do is what the Iranian people are trying to do now, which is protest if you don't like something that the government's doing. How, how is that a good system? The only way that you can affect change is to riot and protest? Like, like people must die? People, uh, a few people have been shot, at least I don't know what the total death count is yet, but people are dying. Uh, businesses are being destroyed. Places are being destroyed. Properties being destroyed. And that's what you have to do to, to try to affect change in order for these politicians to get the message. Maybe affect change. It's not even guaranteed at that point. He could just say, ah, you know, fuck you. I don't care what you think. I'm in charge here. And that's the beautiful thing about the free market. The free market is the ultimate expression of democracy. It, it, in fact, it solves a lot of the problems that democracy has, at least some of them. 
I mean, there's too many problems to totally fix democracy. But everyone, uh, you have direct, instant representation in, in the marketplace. No matter whether or not you're a minority or a majority, there could be a hundred people that have this little tiny niche thing that they like, and the market will provide it to them. All right, like you have you have your time and you have your dollars. And the marketplace is where you're being represented. And, and the way you vote is with where you spend your dollars and where you spend your time. And you can immediately let somebody know that you're not satisfied with the representation you're getting in the marketplace by not giving them any of your dollars and any of your time. And you don't have to be a majority. That, that's the beautiful thing. Even the minorities are represented in this. In government, when it comes to democracy, you have to be at least 50%, right? You have to have a majority. The minority be damned. It could be 51-49. The 49% don't get any representation whatsoever. How is that a better system than leaving it all up to the marketplace? But with governments, you have to riot. You have to protest. Maybe people have to die. The only choice you have are these the, the ballot box, which never changes anything, and you have to wait for an election. There's no instant feedback mechanism like there is in the marketplace. Yeah, you have to go on a rampage. You have to scare the politicians enough. You have to make them fear you through violence. It's the only possible way a politician ever gets the message because it's the only thing that they fear. It's like, yeah, you can vote them out maybe in a couple of years, especially over in Iran. Like, how's that going to work out, right? But it does look like the people are, are very upset about this. And they've been rioting for three days now. They have been up in arms that their government accidentally shot down this plane, that they lied about it initially. And, and they're demanding that this guy step down. They, they want a complete overhaul. But like I said, it just goes to show you how bad of a system it is. You know, politicians try and toe a line between abusing their power as much as possible and bringing people to the brink of protest. But they need to be careful not to push it past that point, especially for dictators. Like dictators, their worst fear is to be stormed by protesters and Gaddafi'd, right? That's got to be their worst nightmare. What a difference a day makes. At least, the, to their credit, the Iranian people are are doing something. They're they're upset about this, upset to the point where they're they're taking it to the streets and demanding accountability from their government. I don't know if that would happen over here. Like I said, we tend to give politicians the benefit of the doubt. I I just wish that uh, more Iranian people didn't have to die in the streets in order to get a, a better form of government. But it's just funny what a uh, what a difference a day makes. You know, one day. All these Iranians are protesting Trump in favor of their government, and they're, they're paying homage to the great general. And then the next day, they're, they're protesting their own government incompetence. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, governments are incompetent. Uh, we're not the only one, okay? Um, this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. And just the idea that if you get this guy out of office and you vote in the new guy, that that's going to change anything. It is ridiculous. And we're starting to see, like I said, last year there was a lot of civil unrest throughout the world. And we're, that trend is continuing into 2020, not just in Iran, not just in the Middle East, but even over in France, they're, they're protesting still. Um, they're still donning the, the yellow vests. I mean, it's morphed into several different issues. Now, uh, Macron came out and said that he wanted to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 before they can start collecting on their equivalent of social security. And just that one proposal of two year increase in the retirement age has the French people up in arms, rioting in the streets, violent protests. And it just shows you how hopeless all of this is. This entire system, this way of life is doomed. We are addicted to these government handouts. It's not just a problem in the United States. It's a global problem. This entire experiment in government handing out all of these welfare entitlements, all of these programs, it's going to fail. The, the, the entire globe is sitting under a mountain of debt and obligations that we can never afford to pay. 
Everything is bankrupt. Everyone is bankrupt. They're destined for failure. It's only a matter of time before these chickens come home to roost over here. And you can see what happens when they try to not even take away the programs, but just to scale them back a little bit. Two years? A two-year raise in the retirement age? And even that wouldn't even solve the, the, the problem. It wouldn't be able to save this intergenerational Ponzi scheme. It would just delay it a little bit, delay the inevitable a little longer. And that sparks violent protests. But as these, these systems of government begin to crack, begin to fail uh, under crushing debt, there's, there's going to be a lot more civil unrest because people have become addicted to these government programs. And we've seen what happens over here in the U.S. when they don't even scale back any programs. But does anybody remember when they were a couple days late with people's welfare checks and and people started looting stores and and were basically rioting over here because they didn't get their welfare check or their EBT card on time? The sense of entitlement and sheer lack of personal responsibility that these programs produce. These programs aren't only immoral, inefficient, and bankrupt, but they're poisonous to society. This is the civilized society that we're we're told is only possible by stealing from people, right? Taxes are the price we pay for a civilized society, they say. Hmm. So all those, those taxes that we pay get us what? Uh, temporary entitlement programs that trap people in cycles of poverty and dependence on the government. And then the second, there's the threat of any of them being taken away. We get violent, destructive protests. Uh, That's quite a perverted definition of civilized, if you ask me. And what's going to happen when the American people realize that they aren't going to get their Social Security? When they realize that Social Security is nothing but a racist, sexist, ageist, Ponzi scheme that only exacerbates the level of income inequality in the country. Yeah, yeah, I said it. Uh, Social Security is a horrible system, and everyone's depending on it. Everyone's depending on it, and it's completely bankrupt. There is no money in that Social Security lockbox that they always talk about. There is no... It's not uh, funded... It's not solvent. Here's what happens when, you, when they take money out of your paycheck for Social Security. That money goes into the general revenue fund of the United States federal government. It does not go into some special uh, Social Security box with your name on it, and, and that money gets invested, and then when you retire, you get all these benefits. That's not how it works. In order for it to be constitutional... They had to put the money into the general revenue fund. A lot of people don't realize that Social Security was initially struck down by the courts as unconstitutional because it's essentially a wealth transfer from one section, one portion of society to another portion of society. And it violates the general welfare clause, among other things. And so what they had to do was it's like, well, it's not it's not we're not taking it from young people and giving it to old people. It's just general revenue that comes in. Okay, and that money gets spent on everything. It gets spent on all these wars. It gets spent on these uh, missiles that to to bomb places over in the Middle East. It gets spent on general welfare programs. It gets spent on everything the government does immediately. That money is gone. All right, and what the government does is they take essentially an IOU. All right, they they issue a treasury bond or a treasury bill for the amount of Social Security money that they took from you. So let's say they take $10,000 out of your paycheck last year for Social Security, right? Then that money goes into the government. They spend it right away. But they issue a bond for $10,000, and that's what goes in that infamous Social Security lockbox, okay? Now, what is a bond issued by the government? To put it simply, a bond is nothing more than a promise to pay a sum of money at some point in the future. See, if you and I have a government bond in our portfolio or something like that, that would be considered an asset, right? Because we can take that bond to the federal government and get money for it when it matures, all right? Now, if the government issues the bond 
and is holding that same bond. It's simultaneously an asset and a liability, right? Because they owe the money to themselves. Think about it like a check, right? If I write you a check for a million dollars and I give it to you, that check, assuming it would clear, which it wouldn't, but if it, assuming it did, that would be an asset to you. The check would be my liability and your asset, right? But if I write myself the check for a million dollars and then claim that I have a million dollars in my bank account, that's nonsense. That's the type of accounting that would get you thrown in prison if anybody else were to do it. But that's how the federal government operates. They would throw anybody else in prison for doing that. But for them, you know, it's just an accounting gimmick that they get to use. The check's an asset. Uh, Okay, is it really an asset? Is it really an asset if it's both an asset and a liability at the same time? I don't think so. So what's going to happen in in 30 years when that bond comes due? Well, the government's going to issue another bond to pay off that $10,000 bond. That's what our government does with everything. Every time one of these treasury bills or treasury bonds comes due, they issue another treasury bond or treasury bill, they sell it to somebody else, and they take that money and they pay off the first treasury bill or treasury bond. It's literally the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And that's what Bernie Madoff was talking about when they interviewed him from his jail cell. And they said, hey, you're running, uh, you know, you were running the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. And he says, no, no, I wasn't. The U.S. government is running the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. Because every time the, the, the bill comes due, we, we issue a new bill and find new buyers and take that money and pay off the previous bill. And none of that money that they're taking from you, since it goes into the general revenue fund and is spent right away, none of it's invested in appreciating assets or anything like that. It's just they issue a treasury bill for it. And they have to pay off the treasury bills when they, when they mature. So it's a liability for them and an asset. It just cancels itself out. And just think of how horrible this system is on a number of levels. I said, you know, it, racist, sexist, ageist, to use all these buzzwords that, that, that people like today, right? Well, it's racist because white people live a lot longer than black and brown people, right? I think the average age is like uh, seven or eight years longer if you're, if you're a white man than a black man. Uh, so we get to collect seven more years of Social Security on average than they do. Okay, that seems a little racist to me. What about sexist? Well, women, on average, live a lot longer than men. So they get to collect more Social Security than men do. Ageist? Well, obviously, you're taking money from young, poor people, and you're giving it to older, rich people. We wonder why kids have no money today. Like, well, you're, you're, taking, you're taking a huge portion of what they earn, and they're in no position to be able to sacrifice that money, and they're giving it to older people who have had an entire lifetime to generate a, a large nest egg for themselves. So they're in a far better financial position than the person that we're taking the money from. And by the way, most of these older people that are collecting Social Security now, the rates they were paying were far lower than the rates we're paying now. It started out as 1%, okay? It was going to be 1% from you, 1% from your employer, and now it's, what, 7.5%? Okay, that seems fair. uh, I mean, this is just a horrible thing. And the rate of return, that's the other thing. The the rate of return on Social Security is, like, at best, 2% over your lifetime. Now, if you were to take all of the money that they are stealing from you, and forcing you into this Ponzi scheme, which it, it's worse than a Ponzi scheme because you can't opt out of it. At least when you realize that you've invested in a Ponzi scheme, you can get out of it. <laughs> you can try to get some of your money back, but you don't have to keep paying into it in perpetuity. Uh, so this is worse than a Ponzi scheme. But if you were to take all the money that they're stealing from you and just invest it in like an index fund or something, you'd get a far better rate of return than 2%. That uh, 2% is a pathetic return doesn't even keep pace with the inflation that they're creating by paying off all these other Ponzi schemes that they're running. This is a disaster. This is just an absolute disaster. Horrible. A horrible, horrible government program. And people are addicted to it. They're dependent on it. And you can't touch it. It's now the third rail of of politics. 
Even Donald Trump, the big bad Donald Trump, the rebel outsider who's going to drain the swamp, he's not talking about touching Social Security. He's not talking about cutting any of these programs. This is all, this is all ridiculous. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, think about this. Social Security is subject to a 100% death tax, meaning when you die, like if you were to die the day before you collect your Social Security, it's all gone. You don't get any of it. Your family doesn't get any of it. I think there might be something in there that gives your, your kids something up until the eight, they're 18, but it, it pales in comparison to what you would have gotten, uh, what you would have been able to leave behind for your family if you had been able to invest that money yourself. Even the most conservative investments would yield three to four times what you're getting from Social Security. And then when you die, you get nothing. You could die, like, my biggest fear is dying. Well, I'm not going to get any of it anyways. But imagine dying, like, the day after you retire or something like that. And all of that money that you paid in Social Security is just gone. You don't get any of it. Nothing. What a, what a great system. And, of course, the government spent all of it immediately. And that, I mean, that's literally the definition of a Ponzi scheme. You're paying for current retirees by getting a whole new batch of future retirees to pay into this system. And none of the money is invested in an appreciating asset. And that, that's what a Ponzi scheme is. And the government can't make a Ponzi scheme work. They're illegal for a reason. They're illegal because they don't work. Right. And government can't make them work any better just by mandating that people get involved in them. So this is a disaster. It's going to be a disaster. And what's going on in France right now and, and these riots in Iran and things like that, th all of this civil unrest is coming to a theater near you. It's only a matter of time. We, we really have to get away from this mentality of uh, this sense of entitlement that we have as Americans because people my age and people younger all you kids out there you're not getting your social security it's just not going to happen you cannot depend on this government to provide for you later on down the road you need to provide for yourselves they'll do the the most dishonest thing like you may get your social security nominal dollar amount like if you're getting I don't know three grand a month or something you'll get three thousand dollars a month but what's that $3,000 going to buy you? Because they have to print this money in order to pay you. They have to create inflation in order to pay you, which will destroy the value of the dollar. So you'll get your dollar amount that you're owed, technically, your $3,000 a month, and you can take that to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee or something like that. It's not going to be something that you can live off of. Anyway, I wasn't planning on getting into a whole Social Security tangent there. But I do think we are starting to see a lot of these government programs fail around the world. And even the smallest attempt at, at staving off the inevitable, at, at adapting these um, programs, changing the, the things around a little bit. And that's the other thing about Social Security. You're not entitled to it. Uh, Congress can change the, the terms of it at any time. They can decrease the amount that you get. They can say you don't get anything at all. They can increase the amount that you have to pay into it. They, they can do whatever they want. Uh, you're not guaranteed to get any of it. But people think they're guaranteed. People think they're entitled to it. And I, I shudder to think what's going to happen over here when their version of Macron comes out and says, okay, we have to raise the retirement age now by a couple of years to try to keep this game going. And then eventually when the jig is up and the, the people get left holding the bag who have been screwed out of out of their life savings paying into this Ponzi scheme, well, what's going to happen then? Over in France, in true spineless politician form, Macron's already backed off of that idea of raising the retirement age. The, the protests work, I guess. I, if you call that working, it, you know, they, they were able to get what they want, but it's going to come at their expense. It's just funny to me how politicians could come out in favor of a policy and then the second protesters show up at their doorstep is just like, oh, I was just kidding about that. Eh, you know, whatever. It, whatever you want is fine. Just keep me in power a little longer. But I think we have to come to terms with what's going to happen over here when all of these people that have become dependent on the government don't get what they want. Then what happens? Some uh, pretty scary things to think about, which is why... We need to get closer to liberty, 
live by these libertarian principles, indulge in some personal responsibility, do not depend on the government for anything because they will let you down. The Iranian people are being let down. The French people are being let down. It's impossible for them to pay uh, to live up to all these promises they've made to get elected. And they're counting on that because they just care about the next election. They have a very short time horizon. Okay? Best case scenario, maybe you get something from them, but don't be in a position where you have to depend on them for your livelihood. Start making changes now in your life to prepare for, for the day when your government lets you down, the way the Iranian people have been let down by their government, the way the French people are being let down by their government, the way that every person has in the history of government has eventually been let down by their government promises. Prepare yourself for that day. And then when you're in a position where you don't need it, uh, you know it's not that bad. And then you can help other people as well. That's what you should be aiming for, okay? Not all this um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, the government's going to provide you with everything and cradle to grave, school, housing, uh, health care, social security, everything. Like, the, Don't depend on it. Uh, just don't. And if you get it, I guess that's gravy. That, that's a little icing on the cake. But have your, own, have your own plan to provide for yourself and your family and your loved ones or whatever and go from there. And that's going to wrap the show for today. Guys, if you like this episode, do me a favor and share it with some of your friends. I always ask that you share it with at least two people. Follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And do me a favor and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you're listening to this on. That will help generate some excitement for the Pedaling Fiction podcast. And if you want to go above and beyond the call of duty, you can always go to pedalingfictionpodcast.com, become a subscriber to our newsletter, and you can donate to the show from there. You can join an exclusive club of fiction peddlers, and we can start to spread the, the message of liberty together. If you can do all that for me, I will be back in a couple days with a new episode for you. And until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.